Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, Building State Capability Program Director Salima Samji interviews Dan Honig, author of the recently published book Navigation by Judgment, Why and When Top-Down Management of Foreign Aid Doesn't Work. Honig talks about the motivation for writing the book, the research process behind it, and about what surprised him the most when researching about different management styles at various foreign aid organizations. Uh, welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Your book, Navigation by Judgment, Why and When Top-Down Management of Foreign Aid Doesn't Work, just published this week by Oxford University Press. Um, it's a fantastic book. And I want to first start by asking you, what was your motivation for writing this book? Yeah, thanks so much. So first, thanks so much for having me here and uh, giving me the opportunity to, to speak with y'all uh, and with your audience. So it started in kind of an odd way, uh, which is I was running a nonprofit in East Timor uh, maybe a little over a decade ago. Um, and me and one of my staff had gone up to see a community that was quite literally at the top of the mountain. Uh, and the rains had come and we were on our way down, but, you know, the... The little path that we had ridden our motorcycle up uh, now had turned into what looked to me for all the world like a stream. And uh, I wanted to stop for the night. You know, I thought we would be wet and uh, cold and unhappy, but uh, we were not going to fall off the side of the mountain to, to meet our maker, as it were. And uh, my employee, who was not a risk-taking guy, um, as I'd seen through his work over many months, wanted to argue with me about this. You know, he, he, his name was Vicente Brito and, uh, Vicente wanted to argue that we should keep going, uh, that we should head down this mountain. And I at some point said, look, I really think we should stop. And he turned around and he said to me, look, it's your decision, but we're in no danger. I know this road. I know this road. We can get down this mountain. And I said, okay, let's go. And as we rode there, and for weeks and months thereafter, and from time to time even now, I think about going down that stream masquerading as a road and thinking about what exactly he knew, right? Because he couldn't see the rain any better than I could. He couldn't, uh, you know, look through darkness. He didn't have night vision or night goggles, right? Uh, what he knew was he had educated his judgment of the local conditions, right, and some kind of general sense. And so he could find his way in a way that I could not. He could navigate by judgment, even if we both were looking at the same things because of his experience, because of his local knowledge. And, uh, you know, over and over again in development, I think I've seen moments where there is this tension between management control, me in the case of the motorcycle, and uh the knowledge of people closer to the ground, be they local actors or the local agents of development organizations, you know, the USAID field office, the DFID field office, the World Bank country manager, etc. Uh, and it struck me over and over again how the best work done by these folks is often done in tension with their organization rather than in consonance with it, right? So, you know, you've got an organization that's trying to do good things. And when I met, when I meet leadership from these organizations, they seem like good folks trying to do good things, uh, that want to trust the judgment of the people on the ground, that want, that realize how messy these things are. Uh, 
And then I see the folks all the way down the food chain who do the best work. And it seems like they spend their lives fighting rules and numbers and performance criteria to try to make the change that I think the organization actually wants. And it made me think, you know, what's constraining this navigation by judgment? What's keeping these organizations from really letting the judgment of those people in the field drive what happens in these projects? Uh, and more to the point, is it good or bad? We all hate red tape. We all argue against red tape. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes it sounds, sometimes the way we talk about it, it feels like, you know, the red tape's probably good in general, but it's just bad for us. Uh, but maybe sometimes it really is bad. And uh, in those cases, uh, which are those cases and how can we make less of it? Great. Thank you. So in your the research design of your book, you've reviewed 14,000 projects from nine agencies and done eight country case studies. Do you want to speak a little to why you like why quantitative, qualitative, like what were your what was your thought process in, in the design? Yeah, so, you know, basically, I wanted to tackle this question from as many angles as I could, um, in part to kind of understand for myself what was going on, right? So, you know, frankly, I think if you're going to spend years of your life uh, working on a project, it better be something you want to know the answer to. And though I had this intuition that judgment worked better, uh, though I came in with that hypothesis, I really wanted to test it for me as much as anything else, because I wanted to figure out what was going on systematically here. And so um, I guess I thought the best way of doing that was first to collect the best aggregate data I could um, on project performance. And the reason there are nine agencies is because I couldn't find a tenth, right? <laughs> that is to say, I talked to over 30 agencies, right? I worked my way through contacts from my time in the field uh, to as close to the head of evaluation or, or the results management database as I could. I negotiated uh, data agreements. I flew to, to headquarters to try to meet with people to get as much data as I could, right? Uh, and in some cases, I just emailed the right person and they said, oh yeah, we've never made this public, but sure, here's the file, right? So as you know, sometimes you you know, spend weeks trying to do something and then it comes through the sort of back door. Um, and so using the biggest, most complete data set I could, which is messy. I've said before, these data are like Churchill on democracy. They are the worst possible data, except for all other data on uh, aggregate performance of aid projects. I tried to ask these data questions about what different kinds of organizations do, how they perform, and how their performance varies across different kinds of environments and different kinds of tasks. Um, and, you know, whether those results change when we look within country, when we look at the changes within recipient countries over time, when a given country gets more or less predictable, for example, and uh, within agency and within year. And, you know, that told me, so, and the results of that basically were this finding uh, that, Agencies that uh, empower their people in the field more, that in my language navigate by judgment more, uh, are much more able to cope with environmental unpredictability, um, with, you know, when the going gets tough, those who have trusted the driver in the car are better at figuring out how to navigate the rough terrain, I suppose. Um, and uh, when projects really aren't 
uh, susceptible to measurement, right? When we can't think of good summary statistics, like for vaccine delivery or road construction, where we could imagine numbers really guiding us in the right direction. And, you know, having gotten this kind of stylized result, frankly, I also wanted kind of the story of what was happening in practice, right? You know, there's a lot going on in that model. That's a complicated set of sentences, frankly. Uh, and, and I pause in part because I want to make sure I get the modifiers in the right places to, to make the accurate claim there. And so, you know, but what's really happening? Like, how does this feel to a project? Is this really about measurement? Is it really about kind of judgment? Or is it about something else that's moving along the same kind of axes as the measurements I'm taking? Um, and so I wanted to think about different donors. So I chose a donor uh, that on my measure did pretty well and one that did not so well, uh, one with a high level of navigation by judgment and one with a low level. Uh, and I looked at task types that were pretty easy to measure and also not so easy to measure, and environments that were pretty rapidly changing at the time the projects happened, uh, and those that were a lot more stable. And so that kind of two by two by two, right, agency times project type times environment, high-low, uh, led to 8K studies. Um, and then, you know, frankly, I really loved doing the case studies, right? <laughs> you know, I got to run around and talk to people about things that had mattered to them a whole heck of a lot not so long ago, right? So I'm doing these interviews in 2014, 2014, and uh, I'm talking to people about projects that ended in like 2010, right? So it's not yesterday, but neither is it 30 years ago. And, you know, what are your stories? What did you live through? You know, like a development project, you know, Albert Hirschman, uh, as he's quoted in uh, Lant Pritchett, Michael Wilcock, and Matt Andrews' Building State Capability, uh, one of their opening quotes is something like, the voyage of development is a voyage of long discovery with many unpredictable turns. And uh, it, these are really great stories. And I loved hearing them and thinking about what made these projects tick and what made them work or not. You know, talking to beneficiaries, talking to staff. I always try to find the janitor, right? Or whoever cleans the, the, the office of the project, right? What did you see? You know, what was going on? Who made the decisions? Really? How did this run? Really? Were there crazy times? Really? And I don't know. To me, that is really the joy of being a researcher is being able to run around and talk to people and learn things and think about things that you never would have thought of otherwise. Um, and so, you know, I guess, why did I choose this method? Because nobody told me it was a bad idea. And because I thought uh, this was the best way to get the best answer I could to the questions I wanted to know, frankly, for myself. Uh, and then having gotten those answers, I wrote this book to hope that maybe others could benefit uh, from that work and, and uh, you know, from those questions and answers. Great. What surprised you the most throughout your work or something happened that changed your perspective entirely? I would say that one of the things that most surprised me was realizing how little these organizations changed on both sides across projects, right? So that is to say, I started out with the theory. So the way the book is written, it's about propensity to navigate by judgment, right? So the idea was that, you know, look, agencies that are really constrained by politics, by needing to imagine, manage up, etc., cetera, uh, are not going to be able to empower their agents. But those who can empower their agents sometimes will choose to do so and sometimes won't, depending on the nature of the project, right? And I would say one of the things that most surprised me is, frankly, in my case studies, DFID always empowers its agents, whether it makes sense or not. 
and USAID never empowers its, right? And look, I mean, eight is a lot of case studies compared to two. It is not a lot of case studies compared to 14,000. And uh, it is entirely possible that if I had chosen 80 cases or a different eight cases, I would have seen something else. But it really made me think, you know, when you talk to people at DFID headquarters, it feels like it's more something they believe, right? It's more a belief about how aid should work than it is a decision based on the nature of the project. And so in that sense, I kind of think everyone's wrong at the risk of, <laughs> at the risk of earning myself enemies on all sides. You know, that is to say, the book's title is Navigation by Judgment because I think on balance we need more of it. But I think what we really need to do is choose the management practice to suit the nature of the job, right? So, you know, use screwdrivers when we're trying to, I don't know, hang things on walls and use wrenches when we're trying to change tires rather than wrenches for the walls and screwdrivers for the tires, which is unlikely to work too well. And I guess it really made me step back and think, you know, I wanted to see the kind of more judgment-prone agencies as making smart management decisions, but... I guess I came to see all of the agencies as making the management decisions they believed in rather than thinking about management as a real thing that could be varied um, and controlled, as a real lever that could be affected to get the best performance. And to me, for an organization as big and complicated as these aid agencies, it is really remarkable how little kind of differential management practice uh, factors into their thinking about the nature of what they do and how that varies when you're trying to build a road in Turkey or build a justice system in Sierra Leone. I think if I stopped people on the street, they wouldn't have too many ideas about exactly how they should manage either of those things. But I don't think too many of them would think that the same answer was the right answer for both those things. But that's how we do it in the world of aid. And that surprised me. You use the term reductive seduction. Uh, where does it come from and what do you mean by it? Yeah. So, um, like all good things, I stole it. Uh, I do, uh, I do, I do and note it appropriately. I want to say the author's name is Courtney Martin, who I took it from. And so Courtney Martin, uh, who, whose piece I sign every year in my class, wrote something for Medium a few years ago called The Reductive Seduction uh, of Other People's Problems, in which she poses the hypothetical, what if a Ugandan showed up in your American town on a one-year fellowship to make change with the remit of solving America's gun problems, right? What would you think of that? How would you react, etc.? And in the piece, she argues that it's really easy to solve other people's problems, and it's really hard to think about our own, where we see the nuance, right? So, you know, psychologists talk about outgroup homogeneity, by which they mean we know our group is super varied. We often think the other group is kind of super simple, that there's a lot less variation in it, right? And that's true of problems. I think that's true of numbers, too, right? So when we make data, when we see how the sausage is made, we know how complicated that is, right? Any good economist, any economist who's being honest, any data producer who's being honest will say, look, there's some messiness here in these ways, even in an RCT, even in the most controlled environments, even if what we're on is a Chinese factory floor making widgets for a cell phone. To me, the reductive seduction is that numbers have, as two sociologists, Espeland and Sauter put it, a patina of objectivity. So they have this sort of inherent, this implicit claim 
to truth because they are numbers. They are fixed. You know, look at the numbers. Well, what do the numbers show? What's the data showing us, right? These are all claims that suggest that are in some sense more solid than the answers we could get any other way. And that's the reductive part to me. And for agencies that are trying to prove themselves, that's the seduction, right? <laughs> because the seduction is, well, I, whatever I think of these numbers, you know, those folks over there, my political authorizers, you know, Congress, if I'm the U.S. government, if I'm the U.S. agency, uh, they really love those numbers. So maybe I should cozy up to those numbers a bit more, get to know them a little bit, buy them a drink, and uh, see if maybe we can dance. Because if we can, I'm going to be able to really show those who doubt my success that I'm being successful. And I think what agencies sometimes fail to realize what authorizers, what politicians who push for those numbers sometimes fail to realize is that this quest for effectiveness sometimes undermines the very success they want to see. Um, you know, in the book, I draw the analogy of holding sand in your hand, right? So the tighter you squeeze a handful of sand, the less of it is left. And numbers and, and numeric controls and metrics can squeeze agencies in just that way. Uh, and one of the things I hope that this book uh, can help do in its, in its small way is to demonstrate that at least sometimes that goes wrong. At least sometimes we can get more juice with less squeezing uh, and we can get more results with fewer controls, not more. On the cover of your book is this really beautiful image of this guy steering a ship. And I know that there's a huge message behind it and why you chose it. And I was wondering if you could share that with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so uh, you're right. I did spend a fair bit of time uh, working on this uh, on this book jacket. So first, uh, this photo is of a statue in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts. I apologize for the mispronunciation for anyone native to Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, called Man at the Wheel. And the reason I chose it and went looking for this photo, frankly, uh, and I should thank Marty Luster for providing the photo um, free of charge and allowing me to use it in whatever whatever I, way I wanted. Um, the reason I chose this photo was because about uh, five years ago, when I was just starting research on this book, uh, I had the opportunity to walk the bluffs uh, just north of Gloucester with a really wise and 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 gentle soul named Peter Bell, who's since passed away. Um, and Peter had worked in aid for a very long time. He had run CRS, I believe. And uh, I was talking to him about my ideas, about kind of this tension between uh, top-down control and navigation by judgment, you know, this idea that we could have not just too little control, but also too much. And he said, sure, yeah, I buy it, you know, uh, and I buy that judgment's important and, you know, we need to empower people you know, on the ground. And I think it makes a lot of sense in aid, but I don't think it's only an aid idea. I mean, look out to these waters, right? You know, there have been fishermen, you know, fishing these seas for decades, guided by their wits. And I thought that's right. Yeah, this isn't an aid idea or a public sector idea for that matter. You know, we trust judgment all the time. Uh, what I love about this statue is it's a memorial to those who've lost their lives at sea. So in some sense, this is a memorial to people who have navigated by judgment and had that judgment be wrong and paid the highest possible price for their misuse of judgment, for their errant judgment. And we mourn them and we build statues to them. And in my view, that's entirely appropriate. But what we don't do in response to their errant judgment is say that fishermen shouldn't use judgment anymore, right? We don't react by saying, let's steer the fishing boats from some 
I don't know, drone-like command center by GPS, right? Uh, let's make it a video game using the best available technology. Because we know that that is not as good a way to run a fishing fleet, even a commercial fishing fleet, even when lots of boats are owned by the same company, as trusting the judgment of the captain who has their hand at the wheel, the man at the wheel, as it were. Does judgment fail? Of course it does. Judgment fails all the time. I'm sure all of us, I'm sure everyone listening has made an errant judgment of some sort or another in the last couple days. The question isn't, does judgment fail? It's, what's the alternative to judgment? And which one of those alternatives in an imperfect world is less imperfect and is going to get us better results? Great. That's really fantastic. What advice would you give people working in development based on all of the work that you've done? Like, how should they traverse the waters of development? So uh, first, I think one of the things that's so wonderful about the Center for International Development uh, and the Building State Capability Program is that you bring together a collection of scholars and practitioners who, I think, via their connection, realize in part that they're part of this larger whole thinking about these issues. Uh, and I don't think that's always true, especially for younger development professionals uh, working inside these organizations, right? If you listening to this right now are working inside an aid agency, I bet you the reason you took your job, I could be wrong, has a heck of a lot to do with the fact that you wanted uh, to make an impact in the world around you. Conditional on your skills, based on your education, you could have made more money. You chose this. Why? Some of it was maybe the adventure. Some of it was, you know, you sort of fell into it as we all do our careers. But I bet you some of it, or maybe a lot of it, was you wanted to make change in the world. Um, and I guess one of the things I want folks inside the agencies to take away is that there are models, there are structures outside those you might be experiencing in your organization now. Um, and there are also ways to move your organization. You know, one of my students uh, a couple of weeks ago prefaced a comment of hers by saying, this probably isn't that good idea, an idea because otherwise uh, it would have been done already, but, right? And I stopped her before she actually delivered the idea. And I said, look, so I think you're right that most people who thought they had an idea that would change the world were wrong, right? So most people who said X would change the world, probably X did not change the world. But of the people who changed the world, I bet you almost all of them at some point thought they had an idea that would change the world, right? So in similar fashion, uh, it is really hard to make change inside aid agencies. It is really hard for people who work inside the agencies to push back on the structures around them uh, and help carve out new environments for experimentation, for autonomy, for discretion, for use of their own judgment. But I know of no better way to make those changes. And, you know, at the very least, I hope that those inside aid agencies, those who uh, listen to this podcast or maybe pick up the book or borrow it from a library or otherwise uh, think about the argument. The next time you're in a room and somebody says, well, we know that's not a perfect measure, but it's the best we've got and let's go ahead with it. Maybe you should say, well, maybe you could say, well, maybe we should think about that for just another minute. So I agree it's the best measure. I don't have a better measure in mind, but you know, Maybe there's some reasons to think that the best possible measure, when it's not a very good measure, is going to lead us in the wrong direction, not the right direction. 
That is, if the first best is the perfect measure, and where we have the perfect measure, we should use it. The second best is not to get as close to the first best as possible. Sometimes the second best is all the way on the other side of the decision space. Uh, and maybe little by little, those kinds of comments, those kinds of suggestions can lead to bigger navigation by judgment pilots, uh, to people trying new ways of working inside their own organizations in more systematic ways, um, and to a development agency uh, whose management practices are worthy of the excellence and wisdom and earnest dedication to their task of so many uh, of the people who labor in this field. Great. Thank you very much, Dan. The book, um, I think, is really helpful in understanding the balance between autonomy and control. And I think it really will teach a lot of people, especially those who doubt themselves, those bureaucrats who are in the field who see this, give them sort of, I think, this empowering feeling that I'm not the only one, there's others out there. And yes, this, even though it's contrarian to what my institution feels, it's the right thing to do, and I can have positive outcomes. The book is available, Navigation by Judgment by Dan Honig, H-O-N-I-G. Apparently, people want to put an E, and an E is not required. And it's available <laughs> on Amazon.com. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.